So, should be a uh, maybe a, a fitting passage here, as Jesus, really in the final hours of his life, sharing with his disciples, you know, I'm going, I'm going away, and uh, and so he gives us this really these solemn, I mean, probably very solemn, sad words, but hopeful words, as we'll see. But so we have been talking about Lent. And among Protestants, it's kind of controversial topic or whatever. But let me just ask you all the same question I asked last week is, what do you think of when you hear Lent? And maybe it's the fuzzy stuff down in the bottom of your pocket. Uh, Or uh, maybe you have bad memories of those early Catholic days you know, being, you know, having to go without meat during the week or this sense of guilt and shame or all that that kind of comes along with it or whatever. Um, but I think, and, and, and the Protestant reformers, I think, in, in, in good measure, decided that, hey, these, some of these uh, practices and uh, seasons and celebrations have been so abused, we're, as a church, we're just not going to do it. And so some of them, like John Calvin and others, actually spoke against things like Lent or whatever. And I, sometimes it's a little bit of uh, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? And so uh, we don't want to do that. And so we want to redeem and, and, re- and restore some of what the church has done for thousands of years, even before it was corrupt in Rome, uh, that it would be restored and, and redeemed for us today. Because if you think about Easter as a day, it is one of the most important celebrations that we have as, as God's people. We, we, tend, we make a big deal out of Christmas and other holidays, but Easter should be the day. It should be the day that we look to throughout the year to say that day. Because on that day, when Jesus rose from the dead, everything changed. Everything was different. All the promise Everything would be different because of him. And so Lent is a time for us, really, as we move towards Easter, to begin just preparing our hearts and and, and, uh, really focusing our hearts, focusing our minds on that day. And so um, that's what we're doing. These sermons, as well as the, the, the Bible app readings, all that together is a way for us to begin to prepare our hearts. And so Lent means 40, and, uh, or 40th. And it's the 40 days before Easter. And it's just been used historically as a time of repentance of sins and prayer, giving and self-denial and so on. All right? And so, but Lent in its best is, is, is used to prepare our hearts celebrating Jesus' resurrection. And so what we're, we're going to be doing is uh, and it's going to be Andrew and these other guys really just going through the last few chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And as we do that, using these passages, these last moments of Jesus, last words of Jesus to prepare our hearts as we move forward. And so what we see here in our passage today is probably very familiar, especially here because we, we, we recite these words pretty regularly as we celebrate communion weekly which is he's instituting what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. But really what Jesus is doing is he's taking 
the old Passover supper, making it a new Passover, a new sacrament that points us to him. And, and, and today, we're going to see today, can prepare our hearts for Easter. And so the Lord's Supper, what it does for us and should do for us every time we come to this table, it should challenge us to a few things. To challenge us to faith, to challenge us to action, and challenge us to hope. And that's what we see here. So first, the Lord's table challenges us to faith, receiving what he has done for us. Okay? Uh, and it, it challenges to faith, receiving what he has. So be, being prepared for Easter and believing in Easter is actually about faith, is it not? It's about, uh, it's be, it begins with faith. It begins with trust and reliance upon something that has been done for us. Correct? And this faith must have confidence and also it must have an object. So we, in our culture today, I've, I've heard this multiple times from people, is they, is, you know, just have faith. As long as you have faith, it's okay. And faith and spirituality are, are celebrated things in our culture today. It's not like they're, um, they're, we, our culture is not spiritual today. But it's, it's a general, vague, and, uh, just a, a, a vague idea of faith. But here's the thing. Faith has to have an object. And, and your faith is only as good as your object. So if I was to, to, to maybe use a stool over here and say, I have faith in that stool. And I let my weight drop into that stool. That faith in that stool is only as good as that stool can hold me up. If one of the legs is broken, cracked, or I've gained too much weight, and that it fails me, my faith had a poor object. And so what Jesus does here is he really he gives us the content, the object of what we are to believe. He, I mean, he, in other words, here as he institutes the Lord's Supper, what he does here, he gives us the center, the heart of everything he came to do. There, as a matter of fact, there is no clearer place in the words and teachings and actions of Jesus where we get a better sense of what he came to accomplish than these words. And it's a good thing because, um, as a matter of fact, as most scholars, critical scholars who try to say that a lot of the, the New Testament and the Gospels were put together by Christians later on, I'm telling you, hands down, across the board, whether no matter how liberal, critical they are, they would attribute these words to the historical Jesus. And so not only is it the more sound, authentic, reliable words that we get in terms of knowing this is the historical Jesus. It is actually the heartbeat, the center of all that he came to do. And so what Jesus does here is he takes the Jewish Passover meal that, 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 that they had been celebrating for thousands of years, even up to that point. They had been celebrating this feast, this meal together as Jews, and they've continued to do it since. And it is, he takes this Passover meal, and, and he uses it for his purposes. And he takes, and here's an important thing, he takes what's at the center of the Jewish faith to communicate the very heart of what he has come to accomplish. 
He could have taken any other meal. He could have taken other feasts. He could have done other things. But he's, he's communicating something by using the Passover meal, is he not? Because it was at the heart of what God had done for the people of Israel by redeeming them out of Egypt. And it, it is a center point, center message throughout the Old Testament. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, you've seen countless references back to the Exodus saying, you remember that time when I redeemed you and rescued you out of Egypt? And it keeps referring back. The prophets refer back. They refer back. And so it is at the heartbeat of what it meant to be a Jewish believer. And Jesus takes it. And puts it at the center of what he's doing. And what he is saying is, what I am doing, what I've come to do, is at the very center, the very pinnacle of what God is doing in history. And so, what was the Passover then? So he's come to this table, they're sitting around, they're having a meal. What was the Passover meal? And if y'all remember, I, I'll do this quickly. We got, but Passover, if y'all remember, the, uh, the, the Israelites were in, in Egypt. And they were slaves. They were burdened. They were, they were just oppressed. And, and God sent Moses to communicate to Pharaoh that he needed to, to release his people and set them free so they could. And, and so God, but Pharaoh wasn't having it. And so God began to send a series of plagues in order to try to convince Pharaoh that he should let his people go. And Pharaoh continued to, to refuse, continued to harden his heart. And at the very last, the very last straw, God proclaims that he is going to kill every firstborn son in Egypt. And so, Pharaoh refuses. And God's people are told to take a lamb... To, to sacrifice that lamb and take the blood of that lamb and, and paint the doorposts with that, with that blood and so that when the angel of judgment came through, every house that had that blood on it would be passed over. And so, and we're told, so this is all in Exodus 12, and, and even in Exodus 12, it is told that they are to continue to do this even after this event, as a perpetual remembrance, as a, a constant reminder that God passed over their sin and passed over them in judgment. Well, one uh, uh, pastor, commentator, comment, commented on this. is What is remarkable about the Passover is, is how indiscriminate it was. Because the judgment was not just for those Egyptians, you know, those evil Egyptians. It wasn't just for, for certain uh, theological or moral people or not moral people. And so the Israelites couldn't have said that evening that God passed us over because we're the good people. We're the good guys. No. The angel of judgment was coming to every house. Because every house, even the Israelites. And so this perpetual reminder was even we deserved it too. We are like Pharaoh. And the only reason God has passed us over was a sacrifice. And that's what they were reminded of over and over again. And so, so this is what happened then in, in history and in Jesus' day. 
the afternoon before the Passover meal, uh, everybody would take their lamb up to the temple and to be sacrificed. And then and then and friends and family from out of town. This was one of the, the three big pilgrimages at the time where Jews in the hundreds of thousands would come, would descend upon Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And so houses were full of guests and friends and extended family. Who knew, right? How many, where those people had to stay and, and celebrate this feast. And so the lambs were slaughtered and a meal was prepared. And we see that just before this passage, Jesus having them be moved to prepare this meal. And um, so afterwards, this lamb would be roasted and it would be served along with a whole bunch of other ceremonial foods, particularly unleavened bread. Because at that time, that when they ate that evening, it was actually the next day, which was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So if y'all have ever had our, our matzah bread here, our unleavened bread, I mean, it's somewhat significant because Jesus would have been eating, they would have been eating unleavened bread. But also, there would have been cups of wine as well. We know that. So when Jesus says cup, he doesn't have to say cup of wine. They would have known it was a cup of wine. Okay? And so, this meal that they had once, once a year, everybody gathered and they had this meal. This meal was extremely important. It was filled with messianic expectations, prophetic significance. And, and here's why. They believe that just as God had saved his people when the angel of the Lord passed them over in, in, in Egypt, it was also believed that the Lord would come again at Passover to save them. They believe that today. They believe, so it's not just thinking back and remembering what God did back in Egypt. It is a belief that this is prophetic, this is uh, messianic, and they believe that when they celebrate every year, that when God will eventually save them, and the Messiah will come, it will come when they are celebrating uh, the Passover feasts. As, as a, as, uh, as a matter of fact, in Exodus 12, it says this, it was a night of vigil. For the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And so on this night, all Israel is to keep the vigil of the Lord for generations to come. So they sit waiting for God to redeem. See the significance of this meal? And so the rabbis actually interpret this to mean that they should be keeping watch to see the, thing, the next great thing God would do. Particularly, they would hope and, and wait that Messiah. So even today, when Jews celebrate the Passover, they actually, at some point in the meal, towards the end, they'll have a child go and open the, the door to the, to the house and to check to see if Elijah is standing there. Why? Because Elijah was to be the one to come and herald the coming of the Messiah, which we, we know a type of Elijah did in John the Baptist, right? But Jews today believe that so they actually have this happen. So y'all see the messianic expectations in the Passover meal that even today continue. And these practices continue today. Okay, and so even today, now, um, uh, every Passover meal it has 
a, someone like a father figure, uh, a rabbi, or someone presiding over the meal. And as they go through the meal, the meal is explained. And nowadays, they actually have like a question answer using Deuteronomy. Um, and, and they would go back and forth asking questions about explaining what this meal means and what the different parts mean. And so Jesus, unsurprisingly, being the teacher, the rabbi, the, their Messiah, sitting there, begins to preside and explain the meal. But then he starts to use words and phrases and meaning nobody was expecting. We're used to hearing it. We hear it over and over and over again. But what he began to explain and the meaning he began to put into these elements began to, took on a new meaning that nobody had yet heard. And so... What would normally have been said, when, when, when they take bread, the unleavened bread, they would break it and, and begin to disperse it to everyone. The presider would say, out of Deuteronomy 16, this bread of affliction, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the wilderness. In other words, the, 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 our fathers who were in the wilderness, they had to eat this bread, this unleavened bread. And it was their affliction which saved us today. But Jesus didn't say that. He took the bread and said, this is my body. Can you imagine what they must, they were like, what? That's not, no, 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 Jesus, that's not how it goes. You're supposed to say, this is the bread or the affliction our fathers had in the desert but no jesus says this is my body so in other words what he was saying my body will be the bread of affliction that rescues you and so all of a sudden he takes the meaning of the passover flips it turns it on to himself and says, I am the bread of affliction for you. He says, God is going to deliver his people from more than Pharaoh. He's going to, through me, he is going to deliver you from sin and death and judgment. And so he explains now, in, in this passage, in Matthew, we see he just says, this is my, this, this bread, this is my body. But then the next phrase, when he begins to talk about the wine, he, he begins to give all of this a greater significance and greater meaning. Because what he says is, he says, on your behalf, this is my body, this is my, my blood for you. In other words, it is on your behalf. It is for your sake. And so, he's saying, my body, my blood is going to be taken for you. And and think about it. It definitely points back to the original meaning of Passover, which was, what happened? So, the angel of judgment was going to come through and and every firstborn child was going to die. However, the, the houses, 
where a, a lamb lost its life and its blood painted the door, those houses were spared. Those houses were saved, as it were. And so, every house either had a dead son or a dead lamb. See it? And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the lamb for you. Now, there's something strange in this. Because sometimes it's not so much what is said and what is done. Sometimes what is omitted becomes really important. Because think about it here. Um, there was three big elements to any Passover meal. Yes, there was bread and, and there was uh, herbs and different things of that sort. Um, but then there was also wine, which was very important as well. And there was cups of wine handed out as far as signs of God's blessing and so on. Okay, But then... There was the main course, the, the roasted lamb. And, and Jesus doesn't mention it at all. Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? Where's the lamb? If you go to my house, if you go to somebody's house for dinner and all they have is a little bread and wine, you're like, ah, dang it, I didn't know this was only hors d'oeuvres. I would have had, I would have stopped at McDonald's or something on the way over here, right? Like, that's a bummer to show up and the food, there's no good food. Like, ugh. That's the worst party, right? A good party, it's like a Filipino neighbor's, is like packed with good food, right? So here's a problem here. Jesus is instituting a new meal where there's just some unleavened bread, which y'all have had it a bunch of times, and some wine. Where's the, where's the, where's the lamb, Jesus? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Jesus is saying, I'm the lamb. We don't need a lamb. I am the lamb. I am your sacrificial lamb. Matter of fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes it clear. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And so Jesus takes the Passover supper, turns it in on himself signifying that he would be broken, his blood would be poured out, and as he would act and actually be the ultimate sacrificial lamb. And this was the heart of what we are to believe and to trust. It is the heart of what he did for us. And so he gives us the content, the object of our faith, and a good one at that. Okay, but secondly, we can't just stop there because this supper challenges not just the faith, but it challenges us to action, to respond to what he has done for us. There's a, there's a response, there's action that has to happen. Because the, the Christian faith was never meant to just be something personal, internal, something intellectual. And we see that in the evangelical church today. You know, the Christian faith is, just, is so intellectual and cerebral and very very seldomly goes into actual motivating us to do and act so it's either emotional intellectual or it's personal you know it's the, the box over here but it, it doesn't go beyond acting and moving 
Jesus doesn't just tell us to believe this. He doesn't say, hey, here's this table, here's the bread, here's the wine. I want you to believe what this means. Do you notice that? He actually moves on to say, take. Which means take and eat, which you see in other passages of this account. Take it and eat it. And he says, take and drink. So what does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he tells us to take and eat, to take and drink? What is what 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 action does that mean other than that we would, you know, put a little bread in our mouth and chew it up and then a little, you know, communion? There's more significance here. Because it's it's symbolizing, it's pointing to a little bit of a greater reality. We we see a little bit of this um, in John chapter 6. I have it on my sheet here. I don't, man. It's on the screen. Okay, I'll just look. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. This is, remember, the bread of affliction? And they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. Some more? Yeah. And the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because they're like, This is nasty, guy. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And the accounts after this is a lot of the disciples left. Like, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Eating his blood, drinking his blood, eating his flesh. This sounds like a a B-rated zombie movie. What is going on here? What What does he mean to eat and drink his flesh and blood? Now, obviously, hopefully, we see kind of almost comically the Jews here are debating amongst themselves, like, why? what is he talking about here? This can't, you know. It, it doesn't mean that we actually eat and drink Jesus' physical body and his blood, which, you know, it, it would, you know, by now, a couple thousand years ago, I'm not even sure it would be edible. Like, come on. Right? But he couldn't have meant his actual body and blood. And, and, and also, as in the Roman church, and actually Lutherans as well, so this isn't just a Protestant Catholic thing, is that there's a sense in which that when we have communion and they bless it, that the bread and the, and the wine or grape juice becomes the actual, somehow actual spiritual, physical body and blood of Jesus. And the problem with that, Jesus could not have meant, particularly here in Matthew and his other places, he could not have meant, when he held that piece of bread up, that he was saying, this is going to someday become my physical body. 
I mean, that doesn't make any sense. If this is my body, his body was holding his body. Does it make any sense? So he's saying this represents something. It's representative. It points to another reality. Um, and so he, he doesn't actually mean body and blood, um, but it was really, okay, pointing to another reality. And, and I think if you just think about it practically, what happens when you eat something? You ever think about that? We eat all the time. We, when we eat something, we take these elements into our bodies. When we drink something, we take that into our bodies, and our bodies digest those things, and it becomes a part of us, or at least most of it. We won't talk about that part. But it becomes a part of us. And in another way, we kind of become a part of it. It begins to form who we are. And so, if y'all remember the old, um, it was a documentary several years ago, Super Size Me. Did you ever see that? Where the guy, like, just as an experiment, he was actually a pretty healthy eater before the whole thing. And, and, and his challenge was to, to only eat McDonald's. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And if they ever asked him, would you like to supersize it? He had to say yes. And he gains like 40 or 50 pounds in like a month. Doctors are telling him if he keeps going, he's going to die. Because McDonald's food, is you're going to become what it is, which is garbage. Now, you know, put that against some of the healthier other diets. And, you know, if you eat healthy, your body becomes what it is. It becomes healthy. It's so, what Jesus is kind of pointing to here is, is that not that we eat his actual body, and, and, and not that a little bit of unleavened bread and some um, amazing St. Augustine wine or cheap grape juice is going to make you a better person. What he's saying is, he's, take what I have done for you. Take what I'm, in, in, in terms of Matthew 6, take what I'm about to do for you. I'm going to be your sacrificial lamb. My body's going to be broken. My blood is going to be shed on your behalf, in place of you, so that the judgment of God will pass over you, so that you will be delivered and set free from sin and death. That's what he's saying. He's saying, take that, make it a part of you. Take it and eat it, ingest it, make it who you are. Actively take what he has done for us and make it a part of us, allowing it to transform us. As Paul says in Romans 12, being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so we are to take these and they are not just to sit up here in our brain or in our, our shallow emotions. We, they become a part of who we are. There's a lot to be said on that. So communion is, is really is way more than just a memorial as well. Some Protestants would say that this is just remembering what he did for us. But there's more to it. It's, it's an action. He wants us to take this. And every time we come to this table in faith and, and we begin to do these symbols, okay, we are reenacting, we're remembering, we're rehearsing. We are taking in and making a part of who we are. And the, the good news is, too, is the Holy Spirit takes that and, and, and begins to transform us and to give us and, and maybe, as one person put it, making it our controlling consciousness. 
And in Mark and Luke and 1 Corinthians, other accounts of this Last Supper, we are told that Jesus also said, do this in remembrance of me. Just like in Exodus 12, it is a perpetual remembrance. And so whether we come to these actual elements at the table or not, we are to constantly be renewed and restored and taking in and, and, and becoming transformed by the truths of the gospel on a regular basis. Do this remembrance of me. <coughs> Excuse me. So, the communion, Lord's table, challenges us to faith, challenges us to action, and lastly, it challenges us to hope. So what is Jesus saying here? Wait, actually, let's read verse 29. This is important. Verse 29, he says something kind of strange here. He's, after he institutes this, he says, take the, you know, the, the bread, this is my body. This, take the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to him. Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many of forgiveness of sins. Then to verse 29, he says something kind of strange here. He says, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine, from now on until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So, kind of a strange saying here. And I used to wonder what is going on here. It's kind of like, oh, you know, Jesus is setting up this amazing communion table. And this is the new Passover meal that we are to do. And then he kind of lays in like this bummer saying here. Um, Okay, okay. Because so, really, if you look at this statement, there's a lot. Of, there's great sorrow in what he's saying here. He's saying from that point on. Okay, first of all, I'm leaving. Secondly, he what he is going to know in the last remaining parts of his life is going to be suffering, torture, and death. And that his, his from that moment on. A glass of wine will not touch his lips. So it's, it's a statement of, of real heartbreak and sorrow. However, there's also amazing hope in what he says. Because he says, until. He doesn't say, my, my lips will never touch this wine again. He's saying, until. Until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's saying there is great hope. There, there's a day when we will sit down with Jesus and enjoy a glass of wine. And I hope next time you take wine, a few moments, or at dinner, It'll remind you there's going to be a day when that glass is going to touch your lips in the presence of Jesus himself. Charles Spurgeon said this. When he says, is this on there? No? No? Okay, that's fine. What, Jesus, uh, when Spurgeon said, when he says, I shall drink no more of this fruit of the vine now with you. He does not imply that in heaven is a meeting place. Does, does he not imply that in heaven is the meeting place of them that triumph and the staterooms of them that feast? 
all the enjoyments that can be imagined and more belong to the beatific state of the glorified. In other words, he's saying there is a time coming. There is a great hope. When we will not, no longer be in sorrow, we will no longer be in pain, we will no longer be withheld, but we will be in utter and joyful celebration together. And so we see in Revelation 9, says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is a meal coming. There is a table set, and it's already set for us, and, and it is coming when we will sit at the table in the presence of Jesus himself, and we will enjoy a better meal. And here's the thing. This is an actual physical hope. This isn't some floating in the clouds with little cherubs, little babies floating around with wings and harps and stuff. It's nothing like that. This is a real physical new heaven, new earth. Why? Because Jesus says, I won't drink this wine until then. So wine is going to be there. We're going to sit there physically with him. And this is the great hope. Is it that we would fly in the bold sweet by and by floating around in the clouds, but that, we, that God himself would restore this universe when heaven and earth are brought together in a new heavens and a new earth. But it's also a, a, a great relational hope. And this is what Charles Spurgeon, a personal hope. This is what Charles Spurgeon points this out brilliantly. He says, Okay, we learn too that the joys of heaven are social. Guess what? Because Jesus says, until I drink it anew with you. We're not going to be sitting up there by ourselves. We're going to be sitting there together, actually in the presence of Jesus himself. And when we see the greater what that means. Revelations 21, 1 through 7 says, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. That means the chaos and culture around us. And I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And then they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said... I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost. From the spring, the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And they, I will be their God. And they will be my children. What a great hope. And this is the kind of hope that will transform your life. And it will even transform how you even see death. 
St. Cyprian, who lived around the 3rd century, 200s, was martyred. And the account goes like this. On arriving to the spot where he was to die, uh, Bishop Cyprian took off his mantle, his overcoat, and fell to his knees and prostrated himself before God. And then arising, he paid his executioner a, a, a 25 gold denarii. Then he tied his own blindfold, and his eyes were teeth. He kneeled, and awaiting the final blow, at length the sword passed, and Cyprian ended his pilgrimage here. And so what we're told is that he went joyfully, in matter of fact, in such joy, in anticipation of his death, which would mean that he would go and be in the presence of Jesus himself, he paid the executioner. What kind of dude does that? Well, let me tell you what, this is a quote of his. This should be for the screen. He says this, we have solemnly renounced the world, and therefore, while we continue in it, should behave as strangers and pilgrims. We should welcome that happy day of our death, which is to fix us in our proper habitation. Our death, in other words, is going to take us home to where we really belong. And he says this, who of us if he had long been a sojourner in a foreign land, would not desire to return to his native country? Who of us, when he had begun to sail there, would not wish for a prosperous wind to carry him to his desired home with speed, that he might sooner embrace his friends and relatives? We must account paradise our country. He heard the words of Jesus, who said, I won't drink of this wine until we drink it together anew. So unbeliever today, if you're here and you don't believe, let me tell you, this is for you too. Just believe and receive it. Take it and eat it. And you too will have a, a hope beyond hopes. And for the believer, guys, communion becomes for us a sweet reminder of what has been done. But not only that, but what is to come. Tim Keller uh, brilliantly uh, saw a picture of this in, in, towards the end of the Lord of the Rings. When, when Pippin, one of the little um, hobbits, is in, in, is in the kingdom of Gondor. And, and this demon king is pounding its way into uh, the, the gates of Gondor. And all seems lost. All seems hopeless. Y'all have seen the movie, I hope, at least. And, and all is lost. And all of a sudden, Pippin hears something. He hears the blasts of horns off in the distance. And those blasts of horns were the calls of the kingdom of Rohan. Riding in to save them. And that they do. However, we know that the king of Rohan dies in saving them. And we're told later on in the stories that Pippin, from that point on, every time he heard a horn blow in the distance, it brought tears to his eyes. Why? It was, what was it that did that? 
It brought tears to his eyes because it was, it was a gentle, not so subtle reminder of what had been done and sacrificed for him. And, and it was a reminder, a constant reminder to, tell, to remind us, this is what has been done for you. And this is what it means for your future. And so every time we come to this table, it should be like the calling, calling horns of Rohan saying, remember, remember. As we come to this table this morning in communion, we come, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, I asked uh, Andrew to do this for me. And man, he's amazing that he would take the time to, to learn a song on the fly for me at this last moment. It's a song that is a group, a, put out by the group, a group called the Grey Havens. And I'm, I'm going to read it for you. And as we do communion this morning, we're going to, we're going to be actually going through this song. If you can sing along, fine. If not, if anything, I want you to just reflect on the words of this song. Because it so brilliantly communicates our hope. It says, there is a far kingdom. Start playing whenever you're ready. There is a far kingdom away from here, beyond the storm and the sea. And there will be no need of darkness and none for tears when that far